Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Avec Gabriel Jesus, Ravi Chaka, Suisse à Rapter, Rodegaard oh oui Le but somptueux de Martin Rodegaard Le coup de canon du capitaine norvégien Arsenal avait besoin de se rassurer Arsenal avait besoin de frapper un grand coup Et c'est son capitaine, Martin Rodegaard Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly fucking morning to you. Oh, it feels good to hear those words again, Andrew. At last. At last, I know. A goodly morning. Let's savour it. Um, we, we, you know, Whatever happens, we won't have many between now and the end of the season. That's true. Hopefully four. Four will four, do. Four more would be nice. Uh, maybe a fifth. Um, or maybe six, actually, because let's say one after City play West Ham tonight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tomorrow could be a goodly morning. And then uh, maybe a goodly morning after they go to Brighton in the final week. Um, mm. Six goodly mornings between now and the end of the season, and all will be well in the world. That's all we're asking for. It's not much, is it? You know, we, we, we do our bit, we try our best, and all we want in return are some goodly yeah. mornings. Look no- what we did for charity, Andrew. Come on. If there's someone up there looking down, we've done our best. Give us the league, for God's sake. You were there last night. I saw you um, I yeah. saw you mention that, you know, your return to the Emirates also sparked the return of Arsenal's winning form. And I'm not disputing that. I'm not saying you're wrong in any way. Mm. However, I think there's another factor going on here. Go on. I've changed up the mug rotation in this house. Okay. So a lot of people thought it was William Saliba's absence yeah. that was the issue. Uh-uh. Some people suggested it might be my absence. Mm-hmm. It transpires. It's all mug-based. I mean, it's probably a combination of all of those things. Sure. Equal parts? Yes. 33% each. I think so. Yeah, as much as I like William Saliba, you know, I don't want to over-egg that particular pudding. No, um, no, no. All season long, the morning coffee in this house has been, you know, I make the coffee in the morning and I'll, I'll give my wife a cup of coffee. In, in the Michel benevolent, Ar- man. <laughs> in the Mikel Arteta mug, you know, poorly drawn Arsenal. Uh, he did the, you know, the one where Mikel Arteta standing there going like, mm, 
the yes. one that I always post in reply to anything that Richard Key says that might be uh, uh, bad about our football club. I'll always post that. So that's on one mug, and I was using a, a goodly morning mug. And we were winning a lot of games, and then we weren't. So I, I changed up yesterday morning, same mug for my wife, but I changed my mug to a mug that a friend of mine got me for my birthday, for my 50th birthday last year, which says on the side, Lord Cuntington. Mm. And okay. I think I think that's what uh, sparked our revival. So are you going to stick with Lord Cuntington? I am, I am Lord Cuntington until the end of the season. No two ways about it. We shall address you as such. <laughs> uh, my I, full, I, I my full and proper mug. title. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I use the Goodly Morning mug a lot. Maybe yeah. that's... Maybe that should be used more sparingly. I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe just on goodly mornings so you don't mm. wear it out, you know? Interesting. Well, whatever it is, it all came together to work. I guess the seventh goodly morning could be Chelsea's relegation. Oh, God. I don't think I would be able to contain the laughter if such a thing happened. Nothing could make up for the disappointment of winning the league, or not or winning not the league, winning, rather, yeah, yeah. or could it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if there is anything, hmm. uh, yeah. Listen, we're in dangerous territory there because um, you know you don't want to speak it into existence or or speak it into non-existence. But you know they're not safe yet, and they're not winning any football matches, and they don't appear likely to. I watched Frank Lampard's interview on Sky Sports afterwards. Yes, compelling, I imagine. <laughs> I mean, what a load of word salad. He does not have a fucking clue what's going on or how well, to fix it. It's tactic salad too, I think. Yeah. Uh, yes. I would like to pay tributes to Tottenham and Chelsea this season who um, we all worried when they sacked their underperforming managers, Antonio Conte and Graham Potter, that they might get someone in who knew what they were doing. And the two men they put in charge... <laughs> <laughs> Frank Lampard and who was Conte's assistant? Uh, Stellini. Stellini. I mean, they have performed extraordinarily well. They have exceeded all our expectations for how bad they could possibly be. Round of applause for those guys. You're doing sterling work. Keep it up. Yeah, they are they are heroes of the season. You know, Lampard, Lampard, of course. He knows the club, though. He's a legend. He knows Chelsea. He knows... He knows the players. He knows the club. He knows the seats. He knows, mm. you know, he knows the bits in the back of the stand. He knows the the corner flags very well. There isn't anything about Chelsea that Frank Lampard does not know, apart from obviously how to win a game of football. Well, I, I think is it uh, ten games? Is it ten defeats in all competitions now uh, for it, Chelsea? It, it, yeah, uh, it's pretty atrocious. It's pretty atrocious. Let's have a look. Uh, Frank Lampard, six successive defeats. <laughs> wow. Yeah, six defeats on the trot in all competitions. The first English manager in charge of a top-flight team to lose 10 games in a row for 35 years. <sighs> There was a stat going around last night uh, that I sent you, uh, and I don't know if it's true, but I don't care. 
um, his his last 20 games as a manager, and actually I think it is true because I saw, well, it's either true or somebody's photoshopped a BBC uh, logo onto this particular graphic where Lampard's last 20 games as a manager, one, one, drawn two, lost 17, scored nine goals, conceded 43, a win rate of 5%. I think that's correct, yeah. Obviously it takes in Everton, but all these numbers take in the end of his spell at Everton, mm. his time at Chelsea. But, you know, the Chelsea job, presumably he took to kind of rehabilitate his reputation. Um, <laughs> he certainly restored his reputation among the Arsenal fans. They're more convinced than ever of who and what Frank Lampard is. Well, they were singing his name last night, weren't they? They were. They were. And I'll be honest, like, I hope he gets the job. Serious, all, all joking aside, I do hope he gets the job permanently. Correct. Um, no joking. You know, Completely serious. I hope he is given an eight-year contract. Yeah, I wish all the best for him. Um, let's put him on one of those long, long Chelsea contracts forever and ever. Mm. Um, that would be lovely. I mean, he picked Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang to start up front. He put all the Chelsea names in the big Chelsea hat and pulled out 11 of them. <laughs> uh, and among them was Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. I mean, do you think that was sort of a selection based purely on narrative? 100%. There could be no other reason why. Look, Aubameyang was a, you know, a good player for us. He helped mm. us win the FA Cup, and I'll always be grateful to him for that, you know, beating Frank Lampard's Chelsea in the final, as well as Manchester City in the semi-final. So I don't want to, like, do him down, but I think he's pretty much in the twilight of his career, it would be fair to say, being diplomatic. Yeah. Hadn't started a game since, well, the last game against us, which was back in November. Is that right? That is right. Had not started a, a Premier League game he since maybe started. that day, actually. He was terrible, and he was even worse last night. And the only possible reason that he got picked up front, when you've got players like João Felix you know, whatever their limitations, Havertz and Ziyech and you've got Mudrik. Like the only possible reason Lampard could have had to pick him last night was because he was our player in the past and he was banking on, well, the former player going back to hurt his old club. We've all seen how often that happens. I mean, it's a, it, it's beyond dense. It really is. I mean, yeah. I, I forgot about Zhao Felix. What happened to Zhao Felix? He looked really good. He is good. <laughs> he is. I was looking at the bench, you know, when the teams were, were, were out, I was going, you know, I know Chelsea are a mess, but when you look at who they've got on the bench, it's quite uh, not worrying, but you're going, they've got some real depth there. You know, if they want to change things up, they can really do a lot. Assuming, of course, that you've got somebody who understands football tactics and how to use players properly, which, of course, they don't. But, you know, João Felix on the bench and not even coming on. Did he come on? He didn't, did he? No. He Frank just... Lampard was asked about him on TV, apparently, and he said, he has a huge talent. I really need to find a clear structure. He's not definite if you ask him where he wants to play. Maybe he's not a nine. I need a nine for the way I want to play. Whatever his future is, I don't know that. Um <laughs> Well, and, and he went for Ober as his nine and it worked uh, as well as we 
might have hoped. And, you know, even though you do have, whenever you come up against next player, there is that nagging feeling. Sure. Like, oh, sod's law, they're going to score. And I remember thinking that, you know, before we went to Stamford Bridge earlier in the season. But it is very, very apparent that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is, I think, at this level, a, a, a spent force, really. And I, and I, I don't think, that's, think that's a cruel thing to say, given his age and given the amazing career he'd had. But... I think if you're coming up against him these days as a Premier League centre-back in your prime, you probably feel pretty at ease with that. I would say so, for sure. Nine touches before he was taken off at halftime, four of those touches were kickoffs. <laughs> I mean... There was sort of a game behind the goal. Uh, I was sort of in the North Bank and uh, we sort of... For- quite a lot of the first half were under the impression that he hadn't touched the ball apart from kickoff in open play. <laughs> and it sort of became a thing of like, is he going to get it? Can we stop him touching the ball in the entire game? <laughs> um, which was quite good fun because I think he then eventually did have a touch, uh, which was like a massive miscue, maybe like yeah. a step over attempted that went out of play. Yeah. I, listen, always sad when a player with the, uh, you know, positive memories at Arsenal kind of comes back and, um, you know that they're what can I say? Some you know the decisions they've made have slightly tarnished that reputation, but it was I enjoyed it. <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with part that. of the game. It's all part and parcel of the pantomime of football. That is for sure. Mikel Arteta made changes to his team, and you know there was a lot of speculation pre-game about what he might do, what he might be able to do. Mm-hmm. with certain positions because we know we're a little bit hamstrung when it comes to the center of our defense. We don't have Tommy Asu, we don't have William Saliba, we don't have another right back. So Ben White, of course, is is tied to that position pretty much unless we change shape. But he brought in Jakob Kivior to play as the right-sided center half. Yeah. Uh, a left-footed player. Playing like alongside, yeah, yeah, alongside another left-footed centre half. You just don't see it very often, and we've talked about this before. You see two right-footed centre halves all the time, so why shouldn't you see two left-footed centre halves? Um, that was basically his only real option at, at centre half. In midfield, Jorginho came in for Thomas Partey, and Leandro Trossard started ahead of Gabriel Martinelli on the left-hand side. What did you think of those changes uh, before the game started? I thought he might make uh, one or two of them, but I didn't necessarily anticipate him making all three. Which one uh, did you not anticipate? Kivior as the, mm, the centre half? I think so. Yeah. I, th- I think that was the biggest surprise. But, you know, I, I, I guess he felt that the, the time had come. He needed to change it. Mm. And Arsenal had been a little bit of a, a rut of late. And I think it was, you know, obviously the result bears it out. It was the right thing to do. Um, so for some people, it might feel too late. You know, maybe he should have made those changes a, a game before or a couple of games before. I, to be honest, I don't think he would have made them at City. I just think it was a, a final, essentially. And he had to pick what he felt was his best 11 on the day. Um but I thought he got it right against Chelsea. And I thought, I particularly thought that Jorginho was a good pick for this Mm. game. I just think that he added a layer of control, particularly in that first half that has been missing from us recently. I think, 
I had this thought during the match, but I was like, I think when we sort of sit back and look at the season and paint it in broad brushstrokes, mm. I do wonder if we'll remember the first half, the pre-World Cup period as being sort of, you know, our, our defining performances within that were characterised by control and the way in which we kind of suppressed the opposition. And then I think when we look at the second half of the season, whilst there have been games where we've been able to control, the kind of defining memorable games, the ones that will stay with us have been much more chaotic in their nature. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, I agree with you about Jorginho in that, you know, when you look at the stats and when you look at what we wanted him to do, I think he pretty much did everything that you could have wanted. Mm. He gave us security, a bit of stability, more passes than, than any other Arsenal player, more touches than any other Arsenal player. Um, you know, he's playing against his old club as well. So maybe there's a, a desire to, you know, it's a step up. Pick. It is, yeah. That's the only reason that Mikel Arteta picked him. No, I don't think that's true at all. You know, I think Partey has gone off the boil a little bit, and you know, bringing in Jorginho and actually just changing the dynamic of the team. Uh, I think this is a really interesting discussion, and I think I've got a question about it in part two. So maybe we'll deal with it in that sense. But I do think, you know, as the dust is beginning to settle on this season. Still some way to go, of course, and we're hoping for the goodly mornings and all the rest of it. I think in the in the, the analysis of it, there will be something for Mikel Arteta to take from just maybe demonstrating a little bit more trust in certain players for certain games throughout the season to maintain that kind of competitive dynamic. Um you know, I under, I understand why there was a reluctance to change things at times, but also I think um, you have to trust the players that you've brought in. You know, Jorginho was a signing, Trossard was a signing, Kivior was a signing. You know, why have you got these players into the club? Because you believe they can be part of, of the future, even if, you know, Jorginho, for example, is, you know, a little bit of a, a sticking plaster mm -hmm. because of, you know, circumstances in, in midfield with injuries and, and all the rest of it. But, you know, I thought he did really well. I thought he did really well. And, um, you know, the, the control that we asserted in the early part of the game was really important because we have struggled in the opening parts of, of some home games or been a little bit shaky in the opening parts of, of uh, home games of late. So I think it was really important that we got our foot on the ball. We were, were solid. We were stable. We kept possession. And I think he really helped us to do that. Yeah. And it is, again, look, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But I, I do wonder if um, we might have seen a little bit more of him in, in recent weeks. You know, he, I, I think back to Anfield, he didn't get off the bench in that game. Mm. Um, didn't get off the bench against Southampton either. Uh, I do wonder if there were one or two occasions where his experience might have been valuable. Um, but that's all you know, in, in the past at this point in time. I think you're right. Arteta, he has got to learn to trust a wider group, a wider squad. Mm. And I think I had a chat sort of on Twitter with Tim Stillman about this yesterday, but I think probably we as fans also need to accept rotation. You know, we need to learn that mm. sometimes a player doesn't play a game and it doesn't mean they're dropped and they'll never be back in and this is now our best 11. But sometimes you've just got to pick the right team for the moment, for the sure. night, for the game. And Arteta did that against Chelsea. Um, 
it, it's interesting because you know he made the three changes, and obviously that has an influence. And if you want to sort of take the game apart from a tactical perspective, that's obviously going to play a big part in that. I think there were two other components that went into this game going the way it did. One is Chelsea being sort of truly appalling (laughs) uh, in that first half. Yeah. Um, And the other, I I really believe, is that there was a... the, The quality of pressure on Arsenal last night was different you know there was it was not the sort of excruciating you know intensity of the City game or the Liverpool game I think City having the upper hand having the the league in their hands at this point in time uh, just eases that pressure a bit and personally Personally, I, I, I think I can't know but I think that helped us a little bit I think that's hmm. I'm not sure I agree with that 100% because I you know when you when you've been battered and when you've drawn three games in a row I think there's a pressure that comes with that as well. I know it's different, but I think there is a pressure to get back to to winning ways. Yeah, uh, I don't dispute that. Yeah. I just think um I think the stakes obviously the stakes are still high, but they're just not quite as high as they were. Sure. Um, and I think, I th- you know, th- this is just my sort of personal theory, but I think the pressure of the City games and the weeks leading up to them did tell a bit. I've sort of come round to that perspective. And I-, I thought we looked, you know, liberated in some respects from that. But again, you know, we were granted that liberty by Chelsea, who were diabolical. They were really bad. And I, you know... Perfect I, opponent. Yeah. Um, I don't... Uh, I don't want to do us down, you know, because I think we were really good in the first hour of this game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we played very well, but I do think you have to acknowledge that Chelsea are just uh, an absolute shambles at this moment in time. As funny and all as it is, when you try and analyze a game, you have to take that into consideration. But I do want to talk more about what we did and what we did well and, you know, <sighs> We were able to do things well because they were just all over the place defensively. Granit Xhaka is not the most subtle player in the world, right? But the way he was able to ghost into space and uh, find his way in behind those Chelsea defenders um, time and time and time again without them being able to do anything about it or or, uh, even on the pitch able to organize themselves in any way to deal with it, it was was hilarious. I also thought an interesting part of this was the fact that Gabriel Jesus did not drop anywhere near as deep as he has done in recent games. And I think that just gave us a bit more of a an outlet, mm. if you like. Um, That's a good point, actually. I didn't notice that in real time, but yeah, yeah that does tally with from what I could see at my end. Yeah. I- so, I mean, I think we just had a... We were, we were weighted more heavily up the top of the pitch. Um, and Chelsea, when they got it, they couldn't do anything with it. We defended well. We were organized. Um, and, and you know, the opening goal, Shaka to Odegaard, great hit from Odegaard, in off the underside of the bar. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that goal cemented the positive start that we made, uh, that we made to the game. Yeah, we we did make a good start. There was uh, 
a couple of moments early on, I think Kepa made a good save from Shaka, didn't he, in, mm. inside the box. Um, maybe Saka had a, a looped header as well. Um, you know, it, it, over the course of the season, a lot of teams have caught wise to Granite Shaka's overlapping runs into that sort of left left flank space, but uh, not so Chelsea. I thought I think Cesaris Palaqueta had a really difficult night for them, and <laughs> Shaka looked so. Uh, so much more powerful and dynamic. Um, and yeah, great pick out and a brilliant finish. I think Jamie Carragher said it on uh, the commentary, but all goals look better when they go in off the bar. And that was one. That is very true. As Piloqueta, by the way, he just looked like uh, as the game went on, he got angrier and angrier. Yeah, he, he really struggled. And yeah, uh, you know, Trossard, Shaka, Zinchenko, they gave him the runaround. Must have been thrilled when he saw Gabriel Martinelli coming on as well. About half an hour to go. My brother, as you know, is a Chelsea fan, and he said to me he felt like this was a bit of a sort of Gary Neville against West Brom moment for Azpilicueta. You know, he just looked sort of uh, spent out there. He looked like an old man who is fed up with the kids next door kicking the ball into his back garden. Yeah, and just at the end of his tether. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm not sure what his contract position is at Chelsea, but I have a suspicion he he won't be there next season. I hope he is, along with Frank Lampard. Yeah, let's hope so. Eight year contract. That's it. That's um, it. But yeah, brilliant goal, lovely take from Odegaard, um, and he did it again. He did it again. But before he did it again, we had Aaron Ramsdale to thank for making a very very good save when Chilwell got in behind just bumped Saka and ran in behind. I think it's a, a really, really good save from Ramsdale mm. at a moment in the game where, you know, given what's happened in the last couple of weeks and the goals that we have conceded, it, I'm not saying it would have made Chelsea brilliant or anything like that, but it would have been a really bad time to concede a goal. Obviously, it's one would have made it 1-1 and all the rest. I mean, it's slightly redundant to say that, but I just think in the context of what's happened in the last couple of weeks, that's a very, very big save. It is, yeah. I think it would have really rocked us and um, maybe rocked the fans too. One thing I should have said at the top is I thought the fans were excellent last night. You know, arriving at the ground off the disappointment of City, I know it's still theoretically all to play for, but I did wonder if it might be a little little bit more subdued, a Mm. little bit more sombre. I didn't get that feeling at all. I think from before kickoff, maybe helped by the fact it was a night game as well, people were just really engaged, really up for it. And that continued, you know, I think obviously it was a really enjoyable first half, which kind of added fuel to that fire. But I thought the supporters, Arsenal supporters were in a tremendous voice last night and, yeah, it might have quieted them a bit had Chilwell put that away. So a, a good save and a, an important moment. And, and another moment before the goal that I haven't seen again, so you'll have to tell me, is should we have had a penalty for a handball? I mean, it's definitely a handball. He's sort of turning away and his arm is a little bit out, whether it's the motion of him turning or whatever it is. You know, it's not like he stuck his arm out, but his his arm is slightly out as he's turning. He has arms. He has arms. Yeah. But I didn't, you know. And the ball hits them. And I just don't know anymore what is, what, and what, isn't. what is and what isn't. Because each referee and each VAR official appears to have their own version of what's handball and what isn't. It didn't seem to me that much different from the one we got against West Ham, mm. which was a penalty. This one yeah. wasn't, I mean, 
slight cliche, but, you know, you've seen them given. There's only one solution to this, which is that when all footballers sort of graduate their YTS schemes and sign their <laughs> pro deals, they should have their arms uh, amputated, like at the contract signing. Hard for them to uh, sign the contracts then, or you mean oh. after, obviously. There's a flaw in my perfect plan. I mean, it's just one of those things that we're going to have to, or we do have to accept that, you know, one man's handball is another man's accidental or whatever. I just think, you know, one of those where the ball hits an arm and it's really close range and everything else. Mm. I think there was enough distance here that you couldn't, you couldn't use the proximity defense. Yeah. The players looked really convinced. Yeah. I think, I think it probably should have been a penalty, but like I say, you know, it's just impossible, uh, impossible to know. But we didn't let it bother us, and of course, scored a, a second goal through Martin Odegaard again. I mean, his movement is, is sharp. Raheem Sterling is—I don't know what he's doing. Dreaming it's quite of- fun to watch that, though, isn't it? Like mm. Sterling's sort of—it's uh, like watching Jaws or something. You know, and Sterling's like, yeah, yeah. "All's fine." In the, in the water of the penalty area. And Odegaard's just there lurking on his shoulder. And then he sweeps in. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Uh, the only thing is he didn't um, bite him and his inflatable raft uh, into a million perfect. smithereens. You know? But again, again, look, when we're thinking about ways that we can improve this team, you know, uh, chomping the opposition players uh, to death in a bloody mess in, in the penalty box is something I think we can do better. And I'm sure Mikel Arteta we, uh, is, is. Odegaard's added goals to his game. Now for the chomping. More teeth. Next season, what do we want to see from Martin Odegaard? Goals, assists and evisceration. That's Luis it. Suarez has been brought in as a special coach to work with Martin Odegaard <laughs> on his chomping skills. Um, yeah, listen, I, I, a really nice goal. Shaka did well again. Yeah. It's not just a hit and hope from the from the sides, is it? He picks Odegaard's run out. And yeah, he does. Meets it with a nice finish. Uh, goes to the opposite corner this time. 14 goals, is that right? 14 goals, eight assists in the Premier League this season. Wow, that that's really outstanding, isn't it, for... I think for any player, but especially for him, a guy who's sort of not not hugely demonstrated uh, that level of goal scoring in the past, it's it's really good. It really is impressive. You know, it's a step forward. Uh, he had a couple of he had a good season at Real Sociedad where he did yeah. score quite a lot of goals, and I think he demonstrated the ability. I mean, look, his technical ability in and around the box and in the final third is is unquestionable, and I think there is now more confidence um he did talk about how Mikel Arteta wanted him to get into positions in the penalty box uh more often and you know you can think back and I can think of Martin Odegaard in similar positions to the ones from which he scored yesterday Mm. in the past you know without the same composure you know, leaning back on them, putting them leaning over back, the bar. putting them over the bar. Even this season, there was one, wasn't there, in the Aston Villa game where he he put it wide and that sort of haunted face where he thought, "Oh my God, I've blown the chance to to win the game." Yeah. And of course, we have to thank the back of Emmy Martinez's head uh, for his uh, fantastic contribution. But you know, in general, there is much more composure. He he's more confident in his finishing. Um, 
you know, I think he's capable of scoring that many goals, you know, 10 to 15 goals every season. Why not? He's He's got the ability to do it. He's shown this season that he can. He's still only 24. There's more to come. I think it's a, it's a great... Uh, it's a great number. And, I, you know, I was thinking about this game before kickoff and I was going, you know what, we need we need someone to just kind of step up a bit here, you know, to put in the kind of performance that helps a team bounce back, restore a bit of confidence, whether it was going to be Odegaard or Saka or Jesus. You know, I was looking for it from somebody and I think we got it from Martin Odegaard and, you know, to a slightly lesser extent from from Granit Xhaka, you know, who was really quiet against Manchester City. Not a good day for him. But those two assists were not hidden hope, as you say. They were deliberate. And, um, you know, that's a big contribution from him as well. You know, yeah, when you I look at... Xhaka was really good, actually. I, th- I yeah. thought his use of the ball, his energy levels, he looked back to his best after an inauspicious game at the Etihad. And yeah, those two, Shaka and Odegaard, um, were as good as they've been for for a while. And Odegaard played like a man who'd heard everyone talking about Kevin De Bruyne all re- week, frankly. Yeah. Um, and said, you know, I'm not too bad myself. And yeah, it, it was it, it, the, that second goal, you know, just created the momentum. And we added the third, like, very quickly, wasn't it? It wasn't too long afterwards. And I, you know, I'm I'm sort of at a loss to describe what happens here because, you know, we've talked about Chelsea being bad, but what the fuck are they actually doing? What what is what is happening there? Sort of flailing on the floor, like like they're like those. They were fish. like yeah, you know those. Yeah, did you ever see the? Um, you know, outside a, like a, a used car lot in the U.S. where they have these big inflatable men that stand there and wibble back and forward in the breeze. Mm. They were like that, except they fell over on the floor. And, you know, I think, um, you know, much as it pains me to praise or give any kudos to a a Chelsea player, I think Thiago Silva is just an unbelievable footballer. Yeah, he is. Uh, At 38 years of age, I think he's their best player by, by some distance. He is... You know, the consummate professional, the game we played against them earlier in the season, without him, it probably would have been four or five nil to Arsenal. He is that good, but they have reduced him or they reduced him in that moment to one of those flailing used car lot men. It's, it's crazy. I don't know what they were doing, but... You know, I'm glad they did it. Um, Shaka probably should have done a bit better. It comes back to Jesus. He drills it in, 3-0. And, you know, having been 2-0 up in a couple of games, I was very, very, very glad of that third goal. Um, it matters, doesn't it? Yeah. It's just, it just gives you that bit more security and, and comfort. Had we got a third goal in, in the West Ham game or, or the Liverpool game, mm. you know, we might be talking about things very differently now in terms of the title. Um yeah, that, that killed it. And it was party time from then on. And uh, I mean, there were a couple of moments towards the end of the first half. There was a, a giveaway playing out from the back. and But I did notice, actually, and, and I thought this was a positive sign, that in the final five minutes of the half, um, I think just after that, after the sort of Ramsdale uh, Duff pass out, Arsenal really took the sting out of it. And I could see on the pitch, you know, when the ball went out for a goal kick, Ramsdale would tell the the ball boy, no, 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 don't give it to me. Don't give it to me. We, you know, we just, we, we want to get to half time. Shaka was, mm. you know, directing traffic saying, 
go long, you know, take your time. Um, I think having got to 3-0, they recognised the need to go in at 3-0 just because there is that bit of anxiety there now, I think. And and we'll talk about this in the second half, doubtless, but because we've thrown away a couple of leads, nothing feels quite as secure as it probably should. That's true. That's true. Um, and we'll come, I think, to you know the the moment where perhaps the 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 mood changed a little bit. But mm. Mikel Arteta said we played really well for an hour, and I think that's true. And Granite Xhaka was quite interesting on on Sky. I don't know if you had a chance to to look back on it. They had I've seen that, yeah. They had Xhaka out um, with Patrick Vieira, Sesk, and and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Um, do you know what? I was looking at it. I was I was struck by Shaq is a big guy, but I was struck by the fact that Vieira is still like way taller than him, and I forget <laughs> like what an imperious figure he was in our midfield. What what physical presence he had. It was just something that occurred to me when I was watching the interview. But they were talking about you know being three nil up at halftime and then wanting more that they spoke about it specifically at halftime to get a fourth goal, to get a fifth goal, to really, really turn the screw on Chelsea. So on the one hand, you know, I'm heartened by the fact that this is what they're talking about and they know that this is what they need to do. And I, I think we're in a we're in a a phase where we can see that there are improvements that can be made and the club is, you know, and the manager is going to work towards making those improvements in the transfer market over the summer. And I think, you know, this is one of those things where when you have an opposition like Chelsea in the state that they were in, and when we played as well as we did for an hour of this game, you want more than three goals and you should get more than three goals. You should turn that dominance into like complete dominance. And then you can flick the switch and you can do the Olays and you can party, you know, for the last half an hour, take your foot off the gas because you don't need to go hell for leather because you've won the game. Um, we did have chances. Um, there was one cleared off the line. Tiago Silva, you know, turned back into Tiago uh, Silva, not the flappy uh, used car man. Um, he cleared one off the line. Shaka yeah. um, had a chance that Kepa made a good save from, but I think probably Shaka could have done a little bit better. Didn't get the ball out from under his feet as well as he might have. Jesus at the back post. Yeah, it was just after. Should have kept it down. There was Saka, you know, whacked a shot not far wide. Mm. And then we make a mistake. Um and I- yeah, uh, and, and to be honest, I, it's interesting, isn't it? We were texting at half time, and mm. uh, you said to me, oh, "I'd love it if we really, you know, stuck it to Chelsea and put another couple of goals past them." And I was like, "Well, I'd love it if we got a clean sheet. You know, yeah. haven't had enough of those." And neither of us quite got what we wanted in the second half. But I do think that we were a bit unfortunate that, well, you can call it unfortunate. You can say maybe not ruthless, depending on how you look at it, but. I think ordinarily the series of chances we created in that opening period of the first half mm. would result in a goal or two, um, the way that we have been playing most of the season. So I, I do think 3-1 is a bit of a distortion of the, the pattern of the game. But nevertheless, I was disappointed to see us concede and it was sloppiness, I think, really. Yeah, I think, you know, 
I think I would be more frustrated if the team came out at halftime and just sat back and were content to see out the lead. They did go for it. They did try in that opening hour to to get the other goals, and it just didn't happen. Um, and again, I think it is something that we can do better and something we can improve on. But the last few weeks really played a part in how I felt. I don't know how you felt or, or anyone listening, but when that goal went in, there was part of me going, well, Chelsea are shit. Mm. They've been shit all evening. They've got a goal, not great from us defensively. I think um, Madueke gets behind Zinchenko a bit too easily. It is a good pass from Kovacic. I wonder if we could have closed him down a little more quickly in midfield. But it's a good goal, you know, from their perspective. Good pass, good run. Uh, gets a little bit of luck, I suppose, with the finish that it bounces over Ramsdale. But I was like... They're bad, but I still feel a bit on edge here now because, you know, another mistake or another goal or a set piece or something is 3-2 and then I don't don't want to don't want to have to deal with that at all. No, um, not at I, all. Yeah, and I do think what we've been through in the last few weeks and how how we've let Leeds slip very much informed how I was feeling about that. Even, you know, the, the logical part of me was going, Chelsea are garbage and we've been on top and we're more than capable of dealing with them. At the same time, I, you know, I have some flutters, if you like. Yeah, and I think that's completely understandable. And the problem is these things are sort of self-fulfilling. I mean, if you're feeling that, I think the extreme likelihood is our own players mm. are at least conscious of it as a possibility um, or an anxiety. And this, surely Frank Lampard, maybe not Frank Lampard because he doesn't seem to know what to say in a dressing room, but any manager worth his salt, let's say, would have been sent to Chelsea at half-time. Well, if we get one here, you know, believe because Arsenal have shown a capacity to crumble, to let Leeds go. Yeah. So that dynamic is present on the pitch and in the stadium, you know, we're all feeling it, players, fans alike, and also you guys watching at home. So I had the same worries and concerns. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, I think I probably over-worried. Do you know what I mean? I think sure. I was probably more anxious than is necessary, but I think given the trauma of the last few weeks, um, that's understandable. Uh, by the way, just on the goal, mm. like I, I think it's... a a good pass and uh, yeah, fair enough run. But I think if we're going to, uh, you know, we, we talked about Raheem Sterling's defending against Martin Odegaard. I do think that was quite bad from Zinchenko. No, I agree. And, yeah. You know, I think Gabriel uh, and Ramsdale, if you watch um, as soon as the ball hits the net, I think let him know about it in a pretty, uh, pretty clear way. But yeah, I think it's, uh, we may have questions about this, but he's such a yeah. fascinating player because, you know, you do sort of take the rough with the smooth to an extent. Yeah, um, I, I think we do have questions. So we might leave that part of it. Um, we, we did make some changes. Martinelli came on. Reese Nelson came on for Bakayo Saka. Um, I, I wonder if we were slightly inhibited by the fact that we conceded a goal where... You know, we didn't necessarily want to go and 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 have a real pop um, because this has happened before in recent weeks. You know, we've been three nil up. We were three nil up against Leeds, three nil up against Crystal Palace. They got one back, and we managed to get a fourth goal in both of those games. I just felt like maybe in this one we didn't quite 
push as hard as we did in those previous games. Um, maybe because of, of what's happened. But, you know, in the end, I don't think Chelsea threatened particularly. There were a couple of set pieces towards the end, but that was that was really about it. Uh, and I think... No, nobody wanted 3-2 is basically, I think, the explanation. Yeah. Like, I think Arteta and the players were just like 3-2, given what we've been through in recent weeks, is sort of unconscionable. So did I make up a word there? Let's move past it. Yeah, let's go. Um yeah, you know, I think you're right to say that the three one is a slight distortion of the the I mean it looks We had ten shots on target, you know? Yeah. Um the the Chelsea fans aren't having Kepper at all. Right. Uh, but I thought he made a couple of decent saves actually. I don't think he was necessarily at fault for any of the goals. Um there was that, that sack of header. Problem. No, he was definitely not not their problem. Um, I mean, he's not brilliant or anything, but but that wasn't the issue on the night. Mm. And look, again, I think it was important from our perspective, given the game that we've got on Sunday, that we we sort of lit the the paper, lit the, what do you call it? The fucking touch, touch paper. paper. Yeah. You know, just gave ourselves a bit of spark. I think we were more solid. The one goal against is a bit of a an annoying one because we don't keep enough clean sheets and haven't kept enough clean sheets at home. But I think we were by a country mile the team that deserved the points. Uh, there can be no question that that Chelsea deserved anything from this game, other than an even bigger pasting than than they actually got. Um, yeah, we, we we desperately needed a win. Mm. And we got a convincing win. So I think we've got to be pretty satisfied with that. We go to St. James's Park for a very tough game in substantially better shape than we were coming off the City match. And at uh, least from a confidence point of view. We've got some questions exactly. about the team, um, given that there might be an injury worry or two along the way, but we can we can deal with those in, in part two. Um, I mean, is there anything else from last night you want to touch on before we take a break? Don't think so. Especially no. I I I think um, it was interesting to see Mudrick, wasn't it? Uh, come on, I actually got a question about him, so maybe we'll, we'll deal with that in part two. Okay. Um, yeah. No. I uh, I think that's it. Uh, I was just glad we beat this Chelsea. You know, I, I have sort of really um, sort of niggling memories of bad big teams coming to us in the past, like David Moyes' United and us sort of letting them off the hook. You know, the bad versions of United, the odd bad version of Chelsea, bad versions of Spurs, where we've sort of not punished them for it. And although the scoreline could have been even more heavy, you know, more in our favour, in that first half, we really let them have it. I was glad about that. Yeah, that's, you know, I was slightly worried by the fact that they hadn't won any games for so yeah. long that I was like, oh, yeah. will this be the one where you go, well, Chelsea so haven't won, blah, blah, blah. Isn't it typical of Arsenal? I bemoaned, and I think you did too, the the fact that we didn't get to play Frank Lampard's Everton earlier in the season because of the fixture disruption, right? Yeah. Um, and they brought in Sean Dyche and, you know, we know, we know what happened there. So I am glad that we got to play Frank Lampard's Chelsea and we dealt with Frank Lampard's Chelsea in the way that we did. Um, so that slightly makes up for that. It does. All it right. Does. 
Let's take a little break here. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops if we're stopping to get gas. You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. I just want to start with this one, James, because it's uh, I'm curious what you think of this. Oliver Adams on Twitter at Oliver Adams 88 says, Goodly morning, gents. Last minute question. What did you think of Xhaka's new initials on his top? A name change? Someone else's top or... Tottenham get battered. Granitschak is on Sky Sports wearing like his Adidas training top. And we know that they're all monogrammed, right? They all have their their initials on them. Um, yeah. His says TGB. Couldn't be Tottenham get battered. Could it? <laughs> well, uh, my suspicion is it's someone else's jacket and it's a member of backroom staff that... I don't know, hasn't been the subject of an athletic profile yet. But I would love it if it was Tottenham get battered. That would be... I mean, I think in in folklore, it will be, right? It will be. But who could it be? I mean, maybe it's one of our one of our Irish physio guys, Tomás Gerard Brennan or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Three initials. GB. I, I will say that... Um, there were a few good rounds last night of Chelsea got bat- Chelsea get battered. Yes, I heard that. <laughs> and it's true enjoyable. as well. It's just as true for Chelsea as it is for Tottenham. Right now, it's very much true. Yeah. Um, just, and by the way, oh, on the, just on the mention of Tottenham, truly hysterical scenes at Anfield. Um, <laughs> I, 
extraordinary. We, know, we they they never fail to raise a smile. It's unbelievable. We did the the thirty um, for our Patreon members, and basically the first twenty two minutes are us laughing at, at Tottenham. <laughs> Because what else can you do? What else can you do? Just perfect. I mean, couldn't script it. Um, the guy, the guy, why me? That guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, maybe it is time to get battered everywhere they go. Maybe all the players should wear that. Um, yeah, that's it. Maybe it's a good luck charm. Who knows? Uh, if anyone knows if it's someone else's jacket or if it is Shaka actually just, you know, throwing shade at Tottenham via Adidas Leisure Wear, please, please let us know. I'd like to know. I'd like to know. Um, okay. I mentioned we had some questions about Zinchenko. Yes. So Danny Banny on the Discord says, do you think Zinchenko's defensive lapses could be a big problem? Moving forward next season, he's so integral to our style. But when we haven't played so well, he seems to get exposed a lot. And then similarly, Jmart91 said, um, Goodly morning, gents. Do you think we need to go with a different left-back option on Sunday? Zinchenko looked good in possession at times, but even against this poor Chelsea side, his concentration was off at many points in the second half. I mean, it is a bit of a recurring theme. I, I think it's a fact of who he is. I, I think game. that's true. Yeah, I think it's kind of fundamental that you have to, I'm not saying you have to accept it, but I think this is part of who he is. He's not really a natural defender. Like he's no. played, you know, I know he played there for Man City, he plays there for us, but, you know, most of his career he's playing in uh, as a midfielder or a number 10 because his technical ability is just off the charts and on days where you control a football match and he is absolutely crucial to that you know there's there's so much upside to him but moments like the one against uh, Chelsea last night there was you know the Liverpool one where I think he's just a little bit unlucky in that he gets nutmegged Um, but there have been a few of these throughout the season where we haven't been punished and we've been punished um by a couple of them of late, you know, I don't know what you do because, you know, you can always say he could do better in those circumstances. I, I, I presume the coaching staff will be sitting down with him and, you know, going over things where he can uh, improve and be a little more aware and everything else. Um, do I think we should go with a different left back option on Sunday? This is complicated because we don't quite know what's going to happen with the the center of our defense and i've got a question about that as well true you know it's it's trying to find that balance between how you might negate newcastle by controlling possession via or against the space that newcastle can run into because they are a very very athletic team right they're quick and they're powerful and and you know they love to run in those channels Mm -hmm. so i don't quite know what Mikel arteta will do in that sense to be honest um but i think zinchenko can also do a little bit better with some of the defensive moments i think he's experienced enough and understands the position well enough to be able to do better in certain circumstances that's true, although I, I suppose as a counter to that, I'd offer he's an experienced player, but in left-back terms, mm. he's relatively junior. 
like yeah, you know, your your average Premier League left back has been playing that position probably since their mid teens, you know? Mm. Whereas he has come to it late. So perhaps there is still uh, capacity to improve on the defensive side. Um, but I, I, I do come back to this feeling that it is kind of who he is and it's the trade-off that mm. you have to make if you pick him in that position. And I think that he... You know, what Mikel Arteta is weighing up is, is this guy a net positive for the team? And I think for a team, you know, heading into the season, we were looking to qualify for the Champions League. Is he a net positive? Uh, absolutely. You know, I think what he offers in terms of possession and control, I think second only to Jorginho for passes yesterday. Mm. And it's often the case that he's right up there. Uh, I think... I think he it is worth it, but he's not uh, perfect. You know, he does have a vulnerability, and it's it's an equation that Arteta's like weighing up all the time. Mm. At the moment I'm with him, I think he I think he is worth that uh, risk. But in the biggest, tightest of games, mm. it's a little bit tougher to say. I. I yeah, I, I think um, I think that Tierney and Zinchenko are so different that currently swapping one in, I almost feel is too disruptive. That's sort of my gut on it. Yeah, I mean we've we've had the discussion, you know, about Tierney, who I think is obviously a, I think he's a better defender mm -hmm. than Zinchenko, but. Tierney doesn't allow you to control the game via midfield the way that Zinchenko does. Um, and I'm, I'm fascinated to see what what Arteta's going to do on on Sunday um, and how he how he picks his team for this. My gut feeling is that Zinchenko, you know, if it's a back four, Zinchenko will start at left back um, because of you know how we can try and hurt Newcastle via what we do with the ball rather than uh, just trying to defend against uh, the way they're going to uh, going to run at us. But we did have a couple of questions. Let me just see if I can find this one here. Um, it's, it's sort of um, along these lines. Mary had a little Ramsdale. He said, I've just watched some bloke on YouTube uh, on the Wiffle by Jamie McNicholas or something. He says, I was interested by his suggestion that we should forget about having a first 11 and, and instead use the best 11 for a specific game. Can you ever see Mikel Arteta doing that on a regular basis or will he always have his main men who play every match when fit? And this kind of comes back to what I was talking about in the first half um, of the show about mixing things up, changing or keeping focus by making one or two or, uh, changes um, for games. And in particular, in the light of the Manchester City game, where I think on one hand you can say, well, look, they were very good on the night. We were not ourselves on the night. But did we, did we play into their hands kind of by not doing anything different? Or certainly not changing something when it became very obvious what 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 city were doing in that game. Mm. So 
how quickly, if at all, do you think Mikel Arteta could implement something like that where he goes, okay, maybe now that the the momentum has gone out of our season in a way, because the, the whole if it ain't broke, don't fix it thing is very compelling, right? Why change it when everything is going really well? I get that completely, but that's kind of gone. So is that an opportunity to pivot to something that's a little more pragmatic at times? I think so. I, I also think that this is kind of the next stage of the squad development in terms of the transfer market is bringing in, you know, bringing in players who truly provide mm. uh, that level of flexibility and different options. You know, if you look at centre half, I think there kind of is, you know, Gabriel and Saliba have been the clear first choice next season. And it would be lovely to think we might go into next season either with Kivior elevated or with another centre-back who comes in and means, mm. well, look, we can leave one of those out and bring another in. Um, similarly, in midfield, we're talking about options like Caicedo, Rice. Um, would they give us that ability to make changes without it hugely destabilising or feeling like it's lowering the quality. Sure. I think that that's something that we need to address in the market. Um, in terms of like the way we play, I kind of feel like the way we play uh, is good enough and uh, largely has been good enough to beat 19 of the 20 teams in the league. I just think that the City game mm. is a different beast and one that required another approach probably yeah. with hindsight. Well, I think that's true. You know, certainly uh, whatever about the starting lineup, the, the inability to change it or the, not the, I say inability rather than unwillingness to change it, you know, um, on the night uh, was a little bit of a, uh, an off night, I think for Mikel Arteta, I guess you would say. Mm. Yeah. Um, we did have a couple of questions about Jakob Kivior. Um, yeah. For example, uh, GMAFC says, Goodly morning, guys. How good was Kivior tonight? I don't know if it's just in, uh, in stadium bias, but I thought he looked composed and confident, albeit against an awful Chelsea. I think he's got to keep his place for Newcastle. And um, Gambling Blues said, Kivior had an effective game at centre back, seemed really comfortable reading uh, movement and getting in good positions. What did you think of his performance and upside after today? I'm not. Sure. I, I think it's hard. It was hard to tell, to be honest with you. Um, I thought he looked comfortable and I thought he looked fine. I think that people are really desperate for a change at, at the back there and uh, he's a new signing and there's goodwill and all those things. I don't really think we saw him tested in any serious way from a defensive perspective. So... I find it a little bit hard to assess, but I don't think he was a problem for us in possession. I thought that we built up a lot of the time with a three, with Gabriel to his left and White to his right. So, you know, although he's a left footer, he was playing in central spaces a lot of the time. Um, and yeah, I, I thought he did okay. I thought he did okay. Yeah. It, it wasn't such a great performance that I was like, well, he should have immediately started a month ago. But I think it was time to try something different. And yes. I think he did enough to keep his place. What do you think? I, I agree with that. It's too small a sample size against too terrible a team to make any yeah. definitive judgments about him. But, you know, there's a reason we paid reasonably big money for him in, in January. He's playing on the wrong side, I guess you would say, uh, for him. So mm -hmm. there's that to take into account as well. 
in terms of how composed he was and how well he did because, you know, he's played... Um, you know, he plays as a left-back. He plays uh, as a left-sided centre-half. I don't know how many games he's played as a right-sided centre-half. Um, but, I, you know, I think he did well. Yeah, the other I mean, thing to say, by the way, just on the positions, is that um, although he played centre-back in, in Slovakia, quite a lot of his time in Serie A, he played in holding midfield yeah. as well. So, you know, at the top level, as a centre-half, uh, he's relatively raw. Um but yeah, I, 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 there's clearly talent there. That's not really what I'm debating. I don't. I have enough faith in Arsenal's talent identification that I think they wouldn't have gone out and spent 20 million on a guy who can't play. And you know, plenty of clips you can watch of him and moments you can see he's got technical assurance. He's got quality on the ball. He's got size. Um, yeah, I, I think he did absolutely fine. And I would probably keep him in there now on the assumption. That Gabrielle is fit, of course. Yes. So, I mean, we had a question on that as well. Sorry to keep asking questions. I'll, I'll give you your go now in a minute. But cartoon Steve Bold, who's at Cartoon Bold, he said, if Gabrielle is out and Holding has to come in, which is basically the only, uh, the other central defender that we have, um, beyond shaking things up in, in uh, you know, in terms of shape, maybe, he said, would you, one, keep Jorginho in? and risk him being isolated if and when the defensive line drops back to swap Partey in to try and make up for that or three, change the shape to give better cover in central midfield. Um, you know, I think if Gabrielle is out, that is a big, big blow for Sunday considering the options that we have available to us. It is, yeah. And, you know, I think I feel a lot better about Kivior with Gabrielle next to him. He, 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 he seemed to get hurt in when Chelsea scored, right? He was down for, for quite a long time, I think. Yeah. Um, and then sort of tried to play through it. He was didn't up and look, down all night, wasn't he? Yeah, he didn't look comfortable. But he's a very tough guy who plays a lot of minutes. Mm. It will need to be a, a, a serious injury, I think, to stop him playing at St. James's Park. I think we desperately need him. You spoke about how physical Newcastle can mm. be. And I think he's one of the guys in this team who can really live with that. Um, if he's not, I think almost all the options are sort of a, a heavy compromise. Um, they're all uh, less than ideal. I do think that you know one of the questions there was about Jorginho. Should he play? I think that's a really interesting one because I think, as I said, I think he was good against Chelsea. Um, but you look at the Newcastle midfield, the physical profile, people like Joe Willock, who obviously we know really well, mm. Joe Linton, their ability to run through people is a big part of their threat. And I suppose with Jorginho, as with Zinchenko, Arteta's weighing up that thing of like, well, is his quality on the ball and in possession going to be a net positive mm. on the day for us or not I mean do you have a, a feeling on that one I mean on paper I think Partey is better suited to the kind of threat that Newcastle pose I, I agree with that I do agree with that but, but I think Partey has been you know off form uh, yeah he has been um, in the last couple of weeks whether a game on the bench will have you know sparked him back into life. I just think that 
a, it is a tough one because I spoke in the first half about how Jorginho gave us control and, and everything else, which he did. But Newcastle are going to be, this is going to be like a fucking hundred mile an hour game mm. on Sunday. It's, well, you know, they've got it all, you know, they're, they're close now to the Champions League and it's huge for them. It's a huge game for both clubs. You know, this exactly. is a real top of the table, fucking important game for both clubs for various reasons. And I think Newcastle will be slightly buoyed by, you know, what happened last season. How did they, how did they beat us? They played at a trillion miles an hour and we had no legs. And it worked for them. And I think that is going to be their approach again. Uh, I think they've, you know, they've improved on a technical level as well since then. So it's going to be... They're battering teams as well. You know, yeah. they in the last month, they beat uh, Everton 4-1 away, Spurs 6-1 at home. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> you know, 5-1 away at West Ham. They're scoring a lot of goals. Yeah. Uh, and we've been conceding a lot of goals. This could be, you know, the the odd goal in seven that wins a game like this. Yeah, it really a, could. A classic. Really remember could. the remember the Liverpool Newcastle games of the past, the four threes, those kind of games. You know, well, to be fair, they're a better defensive team than arguably that team ever well, was. Sure, um, and they're better. They're better than us defensively as well. Yeah. It, it's that, you know, how do you? how do you approach this one in, you know, do you try and contain them or do you just try and hurt them and find the balance? I don't, I don't know. Because we're in an awkward position now where, you know, it's all lifts, buts and maybes, but had we won some of the games, had we beaten yeah, Southampton, say, I know. you go to St. James's and you think, well, you know, a point's not a disaster, but really mm. we need to win every game now to have a chance, I think. Sure. Mm. That's a tall order. It is a, it is a tough one for Mikel Arteta. And of course, you know, the decisions he may, he makes about the team selection will be informed by yeah. the fitness of someone like Gabriel. You know, maybe there is a, maybe there is um, a case to be made that if he is missing, then you can bring in Kieran Tierney and, and maybe shift to a back three, I think there is a need to acknowledge that the opposition plays a part in your team selection, especially at a point in the season when pragmatism might well be the thing that gets you the points over bravery or, or however, you, what's the fine line between bravery and foolishness? You know what I mean? So I think the Gabrielle fitness thing will have a very significant impact on what we do. Yeah, I think so. I think um, it will be a very different Newcastle to the one we saw at Emirates Stadium, who came to mm. spoil the party that night. Um, For sure. Eat up the clock and play defensively. This is a Newcastle that are flying. They're at home. It's an intimidating atmosphere. Mm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be feisty, that is for sure. 100%. Um, I hope we... Yeah, let's hope we show our true colours, you know, uh, unlike uh, mm. the Etihad. And some big selection decisions. We we said at the top, you know, it's about picking the right team for the day. And 
yeah, as, as much as I think Jorginho was the right call against Chelsea, I think Partey might be the right call against Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. Okay, your question. My question. Okay, bear with me. Um, well, we had a lot of questions about this. It's a bit of a different perspective, um, change of tack rather. Emil on the Discord said, what do you chaps think about the willingness to sell Patino? This is what the serious clubs do, right? Sell the good and keep only the great. Is it a good sign that the midfield rebuild is happening this summer? Um, but yeah, we had a ton of questions about that news story from David Ornstein suggesting mm. that uh, Charlie Patino you know, could leave the club permanently this summer. I mean, it it, it makes sense to me, to be honest. Um, mm. I, I do get the sense that it's probably come from his side as, as much as anything else, you know? Yeah, I mean, there was a very interesting um, tweet from... Let me see if I can find it here. Um, it was from Gunnar Punner, who's reacting to a... Um, let me just see if I can find the thing here. Uh, reacting to some quotes from Rio Ferdinand, who says he admires Charlie Patino's decision to seek regular football. He says, it's a testament to the kid. When a club offers you a deal, it's not always the best case scenario to stay and wait. You've got to be brave. And of course, Rio Ferdinand is an ambassador for the agents of Charlie Patino. So, um, you know, we can understand why he might be saying things like that publicly. Um, if the player wants to play regular first-team football, I've got no issue with that whatsoever. I think that's perfectly normal. A footballer's career is short. The, uh, the quicker you can be a first-team regular somewhere, the better, right? Mm -hmm. So I've got no issue with that. The question then is, is Charlie Patino ready to play regular first-team football for this Arsenal team that is mm -hmm. going to be in the Champions League next season? I don't think so. He's done all right at Blackpool. I think he's still developing. He could turn into be, uh, you know, a really good player, but he's still 19 years of age. And I think what happens is the as your level increases, it becomes more difficult to bring through players from your academy, young players, unless they are absolutely exceptional ready to go at 19 years of age or 20 years of age. You're talking like diamonds. The creme de la creme of your academy is what will break through when your team is good again and getting better. And, you know, ask any Arsenal fan listening to this. As much as we all love our academy and love the players coming through, would you rather we signed Declan Rice and Moises Caicedo, or gave Charlie Patino a chance, a chance to demonstrate that he was ready. And I think if you're talking about ambition, if you're talking about pushing on, if you're talking about raising the level again and again and again, there's only one answer there. And that is, you know, invest in serious players in central midfield. And if Charlie Patino um goes on and has a great career best of luck to him but right now i don't think he's ready to play first team football for arsenal and if he wants to play first team football and arsenal are willing to let him go then there's only one real option yeah i think that's right i think charlie in this 
case is a bit of a victim of Arsenal's success. You know, yeah. He was born in 2003. If you'd been born in 2000, 2001, and come through a few years ago when we were in the doldrums, mm. he might well have made the breakthrough. But the team are now competing at the sharp end of domestic and next season, hopefully, European football. It is going to be that much harder for these young players to break through. And as much as we love... Uh, see an academy player in Arsenal colours. It's right. That's that's where we are now. Um, I think Charlie Patino is probably going to be a very good player. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's clearly very talented, very gifted, uh, and he's done well at Blackpool. But I, I think that really where this has come from is him wanting to feel like he's a big part of Mikel Arteta's plans. And and to be honest, the signals were sent last summer when he wasn't taken on the tour of the US. Um, mm. Shortly after that, he joined Blackpool on loan. You know, that that the club took up uh, an extra year trigger on his deal just before uh, January, but they didn't enter any negotiations about a new contract at that time. They just, you know, pressed the button that they had to extend him by a year. So there haven't really been significant overtures from Arsenal sort of to him during this loan spell to say, you're a big part of the plans, you know, we see you've got a space for you. And I think it's it's probably the case that you think, well, the best thing for my development is for me to continue playing. And I think that's absolutely fair enough and probably the right thing for all parties. I just hope Arsenal strike a deal that protects them. Well, yeah, this is what I was going to say. You know, I I would trust Mikel Arteta's judgment on, you know, a player's potential and his readiness. So, you know, on that basis, if if he's willing to let Patino go, you know, I, I would trust him on that. But what I think we need to see is a deal that reflects um you know, our status. We've we've spoken multiple times about how well Liverpool have sold mm-hmm. players who were on the fringes of their team if if at all players who, who barely even played for them, but they sold them because the stature of the club or, or, or the level of the club was at a point where there was a trust in, you know, the quality of the player that was being produced that came that close to get to a Liverpool team. So I think we need to see Arsenal, you know, get a good price, you know, put in a clause or two, whether it's a buyback clause or a sell-on clause, you know, that could generate us more money down the line if, if and when um, Patino develops even further. So... Yeah, that's it. Make sure you do a deal that protects you against, you know, yeah. uh, future possibilities. Um, and if that's the case, and we do bring in top class central midfield player, I, I don't think or two, mm. I don't think anyone will have any real complaints. Let me ask you this one then, because it kind of follows on a bit from John Bridgen, who's at Briggy Smalls, and he says, uh, "Does the club's reported interest in Rice, Mason Mount, Mark Gahey?" Suggests that the writing is on the wall for holding Smithrow and others uh, like Nelson or Reese Nelson or Eddie Nketiah, considering the club's need to A, upgrade and B, comply with quotas for homegrown players next season. I mean, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't know about the writing being on the wall, but I do know that the homegrown status of players is a factor in some of Arsenal's uh, plans for the summer. Mm. Um, I know it's something they look at 
to be honest, I think they always look at it because it's valuable, right? If you can fill a squad position with someone who meets the homegrown quota, then you're kind of solving two problems at once. And I do think that Arteta has a predilection for Premier League players. And I think he believes too that there's a value in English players in the team. Mm. Um, and I think his business to this point shows that. But I know it's something Arsenal are thinking about in terms of compiling their targets for the summer, um, which suggests they expect one or two of those currently qualified players to leave. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be part of it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think there will be homegrown players joining the club this summer. All right. Um, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. So it does yeah. make sense. You, I mean, it's the rules, right? Yeah. You know, you, you've got to look after it. And, yeah, we're not uh, Man City. We can't just go around breaking rules flagrantly or anything like well, that. Well, no, and previously, no, I know, I know. you know, if we were eighth or so, maybe we'd say, well, that's fine. We'll just give one of those spots to Charlie Patino. But we're not in that position anymore, you know? Yeah. So we can't meet the quota with a, a bunch of academy guys that we can't trust in the Champions League. We have to have a, a competitive squad. Um, I, I thought this was an interesting question. Alistair Wood... Sam Dean uh, floated this on Twitter last night and got absolutely pilloried, but uh, Ali's <laughs> asked the same question this morning. Goodly morning, chaps. If Chelsea would sell for 50 million, would you sign Mudrick off them this summer? Um, yes. Mm, I would too. I would only because we were prepared to go a lot higher for that, uh, higher than that for him in in January. So we've got a player that we wanted for less than we thought we were going to have to pay, and yeah, I mean that that would seem like a good deal. He obviously hasn't done very much at Chelsea, but I think it is. Uh, I think in part anyway, it's because of just what a fucking shit show it is there and, and what a mess that, that club is. And he didn't want to go there. Yeah, he yeah he didn't. So, um, yeah, it, it, that would be a good deal based on what we were prepared to do earlier. So, yeah, I would. Yeah, I would too. I don't know if it's just sort of a, one of those statistical quirks. It was all up the other end from me, so I didn't get a great view of it. But I did notice that he created three chances last night, which was the, the highest of any player in the game uh, in a short time on the field. He looked I, lively, I, didn't he? He ran around a bit and he's, yeah. he's quick and, and yeah. everything but else. I think Ben White relished it a bit. You know, I think he was like, uh, he likes a duel, Ben White. And um, mm. I think they had a, a decent tussle on that flank. Uh, he's still, you know, it, what was always said about him is he's super raw. But the raw material you're working with is very exciting. Mm. Uh, it's you know it almost reminds me of Walcott. You know, there's this sort of athletic potential, and can it be harnessed? And there's going to be moments where it, it looks all wrong, and then other times where it's absolutely devastating. Um, I mean, I don't I would, think that's going to. I no chance that that will actually happen. But in no. that sort of hypo, hypothetical sense, yeah, I, I would I do would. it. And part of the reason I would do it is that I think that we do need. The reason we went so hard for him is that Mikel Arteta, I think, feels or knows that we need a true alternative to Martinelli and maybe particularly Bukayo Saka, mm. um, a flyer. We need an absolute flyer. Yeah, and Trossard's great. But he's actually not that player, 
quite. No, he's not. And I do think that is a weapon that we can use going forward. I mean, we're not a slow team, but we don't have that that flyer, as you say, that that guy who can ac- actually just fucking whistle past people. So, so that would be gr- great. And yeah, I would, uh, I would do that deal, um, but it won't happen. Um, where are we? Uh, oh, can I just do this one quick? Yeah, it's of not course. Not a question, but it's. Uh, well, I guess it is a question. It's, it's from JM Gunner eighty seven. I really enjoyed it. He said. Um, had an incredibly vivid dream last night where Alex Lacazette re-signed for Arsenal to play as a right-sided centre-back. He also changed the name on his shirt to Janet. (laughs) (laughs) Can you help make sense of this? I'm feeling somewhat vulnerable this morning and tempted to seek help. Janet Lacazette. Yeah. I prefer (laughs) to go by Janet these days. I I guess that must come from, um, you know, you're probably pondering the the right-sided centre-back conundrum ahead of Sunday. And your mind has gone to the least uh, obvious and beneficial change that you could make. <laughs> Arteta's got some decisions to make, but if if he names that eleven and he's got Janet Lacazette next to uh, Gabriel or Jakub Kivior, something's gone very very wrong. Get him out! Get him out! If he does that, um, I think I had one more. Go on. So let's do this one just to sort of finish us off. Um, Sahil Bansal on the Discord said, how big a case of wine should we be preparing for Sam Allardyce in case he delivers the unthinkable this weekend? Sam Allardyce officially now in charge at Leeds. Javi Gracia sacked. Yes, John Hussain said, how on earth can I support Big Sam in charge of dirty Leeds? I'm struggling. Maybe drink a case of wine yourself. Mm. Um, like he he... he you wouldn't get a case of wine for Sam out. He he likes his wine out out of a box, doesn't he? Get him a box of wine. It is extraordinary watching these teams kind of blow up all their structures just to sort of desperately save themselves. You know, mm. um, Leeds have obviously sacked not just their manager but also Victor Orta. Um, sort of run the show there for a number of years and I mean, brought they, in. They've made a balls of this season, haven't they? In that like they gave didn't they give Jesse Marsh the transfer window and then sacked him the next day or yeah, something? I, 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 honestly there have been some strange decisions this season and I find the sort of managerial merry go round continually giving the same managers a go. Like let's give Dean Smith another job and Jesse Marsh somehow being interviewed for a load of Premier League positions, you know, in relegation scraps. I it, it is odd. Um, and Allardyce, pff, uh, yeah, it, it seems completely antithetical to what Leeds have been for the, the last you know, five years. But there you go. Get what on. I will say is, uh, I think Leeds have a better chance against City uh, with Allardyce than they did previously. Probably. Maybe so. Maybe so. And like after the game when Leeds have somehow taken a 3-1 win over Manchester City and Big Sam is sitting there with a fucking pint glass of Blue Nun, quaffing it down with a bag of chips on the side, he can, you know, he can take all the plaudits that he deserves. Yeah, so they go to the Etihad on Saturday. I mean, if it was Ellen Road, you'd think, well, you know. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think that. Yeah. I don't think that. Yeah, I, 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 
just looking at their games, they go to the Etihad, then they host Newcastle, and they go to West Ham. But on the last day, they're at home to Spurs. So they'll probably be fine. <laughs> they'll need like a 12-goal win to stay up on the last day. Uh, and they'll be like, don't worry, lads, it's Spurs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where are Spurs in the table? Sixth. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Unai could push them out of Europe. Well, Brighton could as well. Um, oh, Brighton got three games in hand, yeah, right? And they're only two, two points, points behind. Um, you know, we don't want them getting points against us, obviously, but, you no. know, if they can get points to knock Tottenham out of, of Europe. They can, they're very welcome to three points against Manchester City. That's the real sad news, actually, coming out of last night, is that Man City also get to play Chelsea. Doesn't seem fair, really, does it? No, it doesn't seem Could fair. we not make them play, you know, 2011 Barcelona instead, just to make a bit of a match <laughs> of it? Play himself. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Um, yeah, well, look, we'll be back Monday, I guess. And yeah, I've got a feeling that'll be a uh, busy morning episode. It's a, it's a weird, isn't it? This time a year ago, away to Newcastle, well, mm. roughly a year ago. Felt uh, defining in some ways and, you know, staring down the barrel of that again. I mean, it might be, you know, I, I, I think there's probably a little less pressure on this game. Because yes, of, that's you true. Know, because of the that's circumstances. It and was the in our hands at that point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But also we just fucking didn't have any players, did we? Like we ran out of, I think Ben White was um, patched up and couldn't run and Tommy Asu got injured and, you know, all kinds of unfortunate things happened because we didn't have a, a big enough squad. And hopefully, mm. hopefully we've got what it takes to deal with Newcastle uh, on Sunday. It is going to be very, very tough um, and maybe a hell of a game. I hope it's just a nice, calm, relaxing 4-0 win to Arsenal, but I wouldn't put too many... Uh, we just need that fourth goal, Andrew. That's exactly If we it. could just get that fourth goal. At Newcastle away, what could happen? Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. James. <laughs> oh, no. What have we done? <laughs> right. Well, we will preview that game for you guys on Patreon a little later in the week. You can join myself and Lewis for that. If you want to sign up, it's patreon.com forward slash arseblog for now. We'll leave it there. Enjoy the win over Chelsea. Uh, take it easy. Have a great weekend, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye.